Hi everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. And this show is brought to you by the good folks over at aboutmeditation.com. That's aboutmeditation.com. And wow, today I am delighted to share with you my interview with Dr. Daniel P. Brown. So Dan is an associate clinical professor at Harvard Medical School and a world-renowned forensic law and Western psychology expert, as well as a senior meditation master in Indo-Tibetan Ban and Buddhism. And this was one of my favorite interviews, and I will go into much deeper detail about why that was the case, why that is the case. In a subsequent episode, I'm going to just talk about the fact that after doing this interview, I was so impressed with Dan, I took a eight-day retreat with him, meditation retreat, and that was totally transformative. It had a huge impact on me. It blew my heart wide open, and it was a deeply healing event for me. And now I am actually practicing in this tradition, this Tibetan tradition of Dzogchen, and, and it's called Mahamudra, pointing out the great way. And that, that's what Dan Brown talks about. And in this interview, we have the pleasure of joining Dan as he lays out his own story, how he got involved with Tibetan Buddhism and subsequently the Bon tradition. And he takes us into the path of Mahamudra, which is what he teaches. And it's, it's really remarkable. And I think you're going to love it. Now, a couple of things. I've broken this interview up into two episodes. So there's part one and part two because the interview was an like an hour and 45 minutes. I wanted to break it up into more digestible chunks. If you want to listen to the whole thing in one go, you can do that. You can find the episode over on our website at aboutmeditation.com. Just go into the podcast section. You'll find the full one hour, 44 minute episode there on the show notes page for this interview. And one last announcement before we start the interview. Dan Brown has kindly offered all listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast a special 25% discount on his peak performance training course, which is a, it's a course on concentration and meditation. It's amazing. I can vouch for it. It, I, it was part of the retreat that I took with Dan earlier in January. It's amazing. So if you're interested in that, I give more details about it at the end of the show. You can get that discount by heading over to aboutmeditation.com and going to the show notes for this episode and click on the link with a special discount. Great. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Dr. Daniel P. Brown. Dan, welcome to the show. I am so delighted to have you on here and to finally meet you. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. So if we may, I'd love to start by just asking you, you have such a, a deep and storied 
career, both as a psychologist and as a, a meditation master and teacher, I'd love if we could just to go back to before all of that, and if you could share a little bit about your story. How did you end up coming into this work? What were the events that led to that? Well, as you said, I wear two hats. I've been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 39 years now, and wow, I've worked with the Tibetans and been a translator for them for 48 years, so mm-hmm. it's a long time. But I started in the 1950s, and I grew up in the 1950s, and I suppose we could say that in the 1950s, science was religion. Hmm. So I was right. a scientist. I started young. I worked as a molecular biologist. When I was 16 years old, I was at, working at MIT, and I worked at Cold Springs Harbor, the molecular biology lab, where hmm. Watson discovered DNA. Wow. I all did that while I was in high school. So when I went to college, I was a hard-nosed scientist. And for the first three years, I did nothing but science courses. And Mm. in the fourth year, I had to take certain humanities courses and social science courses in order to graduate. So I saw this course in Eastern religions, and I said, well, that's about as fluffy as I can possibly imagine. (laughs) So I I took it as a joke just to get through my requirements. And one of the required textbooks was a 1927 translation from Tibetan by Evans Wenz called Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines. And I, I read that book and it stunned me. Hmm. It was all very familiar to me and I knew that that's what I was going to do with my life. Wow. So I retooled as a psychologist. I, I knew I couldn't retool as a Tibetan translator. And I became a psychologist and on the side I did a lot of translations. When I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, it, Chicago was a great program because you can work in a number of departments and define your own major. So I worked in history of religions and anthropology and human development and psychology and South Asian studies. And it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I took two years of Sanskrit only to realize that there wasn't a lot I wanted to read in Sanskrit. And I really needed to learn Tibetan. Mm-hmm. So in 1972, there weren't a lot of Tibetan programs in the country. There was a program at the University of Wisconsin that had second-year Tibetan, so I had to figure out a way of getting a summer crash course in Tibetan Mm. so I could take the second-year Tibetan and not lose a couple years. So I went to – somebody introduced me to Bob Thurman, and Bob said, I'll write a letter and see if you can study with my teacher, who was Geshe Wangyal. So I spent the summer with him and thought I was going to learn to translate. And after several weeks, it was clear that this was a, he was the real thing. Right. And my first response to finding a real teacher was total fear. Mm. So I thought I'd go talk with him about it. And he laughed and said it would get much worse. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we started. And then we had a nine-year relationship. I lived with him summers between college and graduate school. And for nine years until he died, and he was my guru lama, and what he taught me was a way of being in the world. Just before he died, one of the last things he said to me was, he said, you thought you came here to learn to meditate, and you're probably disappointed that I didn't teach you a lot about meditation, but he said, I started studying when I was four years old, and I finished when I was 56. He was then in his late 80s, 
And he said, what you got a chance to do is live with somebody who's reached Buddhahood. Mm. And if that's convincing to you, then you'll find your own way of doing that. And if it's not, you won't do anything with it. That's what you get, and that's what you don't get. And that was enough. May I ask, what were some of his qualities that were outstanding when he said that about you were able to live with... It's just how he lived his life. He yeah. was fully present all of the time. He was deeply compassionate, sometimes fierce. And he always spoke to the point. Mm. And... After he died, there were times in my life that I felt like Richard and Camelot losing my way and going to the forest to find Merlin, but Merlin wasn't in the forest anymore. Mm. And then mm. I realized that I missed the point. The whole point was to become that state of mind, to become that way of being. Then I didn't miss him anymore. Mm. Was that revealed to you just through the practice of the, the teachings? Practice, the practice, yes. Yes. Okay, so he passed away, and then and then what what happened from there? Then there was a team of lamas, mostly from the Galupa tradition, the Dalai Lama's tradition, that I taught with for about fifteen years, and we struggled with how to teach together because Tibetans don't know how to teach Westerners. They either require a hundred thousand rote preliminaries, or they talk about higher attainments in abstract terms and don't show you how to do it. So we struggled a lot with that. And one of the teachers that I taught with was Denmo Locho Rinpoche, who was the abbot of Namgyal Monastery, the Dalai Lama's monastery in Dhamsala. And in 1986, I was visiting His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And he had apparently talked with Denmo Locho about teaching in the West and he said, stick around, there's somebody I want you to meet. And he said he's got a very unusual style of teaching from an old lineage of wandering masters. And I met this Lama, and he said, sit down and take a meditation posture. And for the next six hours, with exquisite precision, he walked me through every step by step, with technical precision of the inner fire practice in all eight stages of bliss the whole path in six hours with explicit detail. And then he said, don't practice this, don't teach it. And I said, why are you showing me this? He said, I'm showing you a way of teaching. This is the way we want you to teach in the West. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, he died three weeks later. Oh my gosh. Of a tropical infection. Wow. But that was the last of an old lineage of wandering masters. It was from a pointing out style of teaching. And in a pointing out style of teaching, you, it's relationally based. You explain exactly what we're going to do next before you do it and what to look for. You then guide the person through the meditation. It's not a silent meditation. And then you talk with it immediately after to make sure they got it right. And then you go on to the next step and you walk the person through the whole path that way. It was like nothing I've ever seen before. and So after that, I started teaching that style, and uh, it worked. We found that we could walk people through the, all the stages of concentration, through basic emptiness meditations, and we could walk them up to a taste of awakening in a week. And wow. It was extraordinary. And this was his holiness's gift to the west mm. that he thought that our great tradition of growth was psychotherapy which is strongly relationally based 
And then a relationally based style of teaching was better suited to this culture, and he was right. Mm. So this was his gift to the West. When he first took you through that six hours with the, the super precise instructions, when you came out the other side of that at the end, what was the, can you just describe the impact on you? Had, had you a taste of awakening? An utterly lucid field of awareness with no thoughts. Mm. An infinite field of awareness with no thoughts. And the body was a sacred landscape. So hmm. we've been teaching that since 86. And it, before that, I was teaching a one retreat a year of concentration. And then we began teaching the whole, what I call first map, which is the very beginning up to a taste of awakening, however stable or unstable that is. And we've been doing that ever since. We now we do about 30 retreats a year. Hmm. And is this, <clears throat> oh, sorry, go ahead. It got very popular. Hmm. Your book, The Pointing Out Way, is this the practice that you illuminate in that book? No, that's not a practice book. It was, I wrote it to preserve Tibetan texts. Hmm. Okay. It's a book about Kagyu Mahamudra, and it's more of an overview of it. It's not a practice-oriented book. Got it. Most of the translations we've done since are practice-oriented, and we try and then take the translation and put it in the form of meditations that work for Westerners and then film it or audio tape it so that we have some way of teaching in the West that works for Westerners. Mm. And did you have a a uh, feedback process with the Dalai Lama afterwards in terms of... No, he got very popular. He became a movie star, so I haven't had any contact with him for since 1990. Right. But about... Twelve years ago, I met the most important Lama I've ever met in my life, and that was the 33rd Menri Treesing, the lineage holder for the Bon, indigenous Bon religion. Mm. And he's, he's also the Dalai Lama's senior Dzogchen teacher. So he, he's been the most important influence in my life when I met him, because mm. he, he's unusual. He reads minds, so he knows exactly where you are, and at first, that was a little weird, but when I go on retreat with him, he, I just show up in his room, and he says, now do this, and he knows exactly where I am, and gives me an exquisitely matched instruction for what to do next. So I moved much quicker along the path with his guidance for the last 12 years. Wow. He died this last year. And about four and a half years ago, he brought out a collection of texts. and He said, I have a favor to ask. He says, these are all the most advanced cave and hermitage teachings and we don't have many people who can practice them anymore and they're all going to die out in the next decade so i want you to translate all these texts and i want you to secondly put them in a form that works for westerners otherwise we don't we won't preserve them will you do that what am i going to do say no i don't feel like it <laughs> right so i suspended my clinical teaching and my private clinical practice for Three and a half years, had a benefactor match my salary, and we have eight books of translations coming out, and about 80% of all the advanced teachings we have put in a form that now works for Westerners, and either video or audio recorded all that material. So I'm in the final stages of finishing that project up. So we'll leave behind a complete set of teachings to the West. That is fabulous. So I think some of the advanced examples of that would be inner fire practice. We have all the stages of that on 
videotape for those who, students who have taken their training. They can follow it up by getting a copy of the recordings and do the practice on a daily basis with the recordings. Mm. They turgel the bypassing visions, the four levels of visions, which is a very advanced practice. We have all that on recordings and in a way that works for Westerners. So we're trying to take these advanced teachings one by one and master them, teach them, put them in a form that works for Westerners. Mm. So as you've been talking about this, the, the one of the themes running through it all, and this sort of relates to the other hat that you wear as a clinical psychologist, is you keep talking about framing it and putting it in a way that's palatable for Westerners. Can Can you kind of expand on that? What does that mean? And maybe also provide some larger context for what you see as the kind of fundamental condition that you are sort of addressing while doing that? Well, the starting point for the practice in Eastern meditation, and I, I teach a course in performance excellence at Harvard Medical School, which I've done for 30 years now. Mm. So I have a version of that for primary care doctors and surgeons. I have a version of that for judges and I have a version of that for executives and CEOs. And if we look at what it means to be in the zone or in a flow state or an ideal performance state, whatever you want to call it, if you look particularly at Mike Shikshentamihai's research, he says that to be in a flow state requires two things. First is an unusually heightened state of attentiveness and a high resistance to distraction. Mm -hmm. So a very focused state. And secondly, what he calls the skill to challenge ratio, that whatever your skill level is, you pace yourself to be a little bit above that and challenge yourself. Mm. Always challenge yourself to learn mm. something, but not too much, just a little bit above where your skill level is. Mm -hmm. And if you do those two things, you can frequently be in the zone in your tennis game or your golf game or your running a meeting at work or whatever else you want to be in the zone about. So the starting point for peak performance is always training the mind to concentrate. And we know something about what that means. Normally, in neuroscience, when you concentrate, you're activating an area of the brain called the ACC, the anterior singlet cortex. Mm -hmm. The ACC is activated during competing intentional demands. So if I did what psychologists call a Stroop test, if I show you an index card with a, the text in big print and the text says green, but the color of the text is red, you do a double take. Do you focus on the color? Do you focus on the text? And it requires some effort to tune the color out and just focus on reading the text. Mm. So when we give people competing attention demands like that that require you to Foot effortly focus on one thing and tune the rest of the distractions out, you activate the ACC. The ACC is underactive in children and adults who have attention deficit disorder. Adderall and Ritalin put the ACC selectively back online. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you do concentration meditation, not awareness-based like mindfulness meditation, when you do concentration meditation, you activate the ACC. When you get hypnotized and somebody puts you in a trance state, you activate the ACC. When an athlete spontaneously goes into a into the zone or peak performance state, they spontaneously activate the ACC. 
the brain is an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't make a difference whether you use drugs or mind-body technique. They right. all have the common pathway of activating the ACC. So if you want to engage in peak performance in the West or you want to start a meditation practice in the East, this foundation for both of those, East and West both, is training the mind to pay attention, to concentrate on one thing and tune out all distraction, mm-hmm. resist distraction. That's the starting point in both traditions. So we've taken the standard concentration training in Buddhism, which is was developed by a Sangha in the year 506 AD. It's called in Tibetan the Semnegu, the nine stages of staying, because you measure concentration in terms of how carefully the mind stays on the concentration object. And we've put that in a form that we can teach to Westerners. We teach it to executives or judges or surgeons or primary care doctors and anybody who wants to learn peak performance. And we also have translated that, what we call the elephant path of concentration. We've translated that into practices that work for kids. We have a version for four to six-year-olds, for six to eight-year-olds, for eight to 12-year-olds, and for adolescents. And we're trying to introduce it in the school system so the kids will learn the basic skill of paying attention because attention training is the key to peak performance. So if we want kids to do well in school, they have to learn to pay attention. And in these days of media exposure, it's more important than ever to teach kids how to pay to concentrate so we have a book coming out on training kids and paying attention yeah it's nuts it's it's crucial i mean with the yeah with the screens it's it's out of control so that's the starting point mm-hmm. do you see that kind of across the board that deep need for concentration training and do you see that as a fundamental source of discontent it's um, a basic skill because people are getting more and more distractible and computers train you to become highly distractible. About 97% show learning deficits when they pay attention to more than one thing on the computer screen at a time. Only 3% of people are super super multitaskers. They have unusual abilities, but most people get more distracted by looking at on the average eight screens at a time or eight buttons on the screen at the same time. Mm. So we're training a generation of people to be highly distractible. We're thinking of ways to offset that by introducing into the school systems a curricular to train people to concentrate. Hmm. How do you find, all right, so we've been talking about peak performance, and so has that been, is that sort of been the center or the focal point of your sort of clinical psychological work, and would you say that is the, the sort of primary bridge between these two worlds that you inhabit? Well, it's not the main focus for my psychology practice. I do a bit of everything. I do work on attachment disorders. I do work on self-development. I've done work on treating anxiety disorders, on depression, on bipolar disorders, uh, on somatoform disorders. I teach a lot in the field of recovery from various forms of traumatization. So I've covered most of my psychiatric diagnoses in my teachings. But I would say that in a more limited sense, concentration training is a big part of what I do because it's popular. Mm. And that concentration training fits that. When we do a two-day workshop at the medical school or somewhere else, and we now have it all online, 
but on performance excellence, the first day is on Western research on performance excellence, how to evoke a peak performance state and be in that state at, upon cue. And then we go from there to how to be a master of everything in your life, not just short duration states of performance excellence, but master everything about your life. And then how to vitally engage in everything you do with deepest meaning, meaningfulness. And then we go into positivity and well-being and happiness and things like that. So we cover the range of what Western research says about living a good life mm -hmm. and, and with full presence in the first day. And then since concentration training is so important, we spend the second day devoted entirely to concentration training. And we go through the nine stages of concentration training in one day. Do you present that as a Eastern training or do you just present that in a purely kind of Western context? Both, a bit of both. Mm -hmm. How do people receive it? It's received well. When you concentrate, the mind stays fully focused on, in a careful way, on whatever you're concentrating on. And distractions and extraneous thought disappear. And after a while, you operate out of a field of pure awareness and there isn't any extraneous thought interfering with anything you're doing anymore. I remember once I was teaching a full-day course on concentration course for superior court judges. I had 83 superior court judges. Wow. And then one of them early in the day when we talked about the fact that as they got more concentrated, the thoughts would wind down and stop and they would have long periods of stillness, absence of any thought. And they would see what it would be like to operate out of the field of awareness rather than operating out of thought. And one of them nervously raised his hand and said, we're so busy as judges that we don't have time to write up our findings, so I have to write up my findings when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning. So if I stop thinking, how is that going to help me? I said, wait until the end of the day when you're operating out of the field of awareness without much thought, and then we'll come back to that issue. So at the end of the day, I said, now for all of you, think of a case that you're actively writing up in your mind and compose it in your mind and see what it's like to compose it with the intention of awareness without any extraneous thought interfering with that. And it'll be crystal clear to you. And they all got the point. Mm. So Dan, you mentioned this sort of primary training on the nine stages of the elephant path. Can you briefly take us through that? And sure. Okay. We have them, we take as a, first we emphasize posture. Because if you have a sloppy posture, the mind will do two things. One is that uh, you get a lot more mind wandering. And secondly, that you'll get sleepy. So we have the people sit upright. You don't have to take a rigid posture, but you have to sit upright. And that will make the mind less into activating mind wandering mode. And it will keep the mind more alert so it's easier to train the mind. Then as a meditation object, we focus on the rising breath in real time as it's happening, then on falling breath in real time as it's happening, and then in the interval between the breaths, you focus on another object, the felt sense of the entirety of the body. So it's rising, falling body posture is the concentration object. And they learn to stay on that. And there are two tools of concentration, or three tools of concentration. The first is called semtang in Tibetan, which means like a steering wheel. You keep Wherever the mind wants to go off and where else in what we call jesu drung or chasing after mode, you stare it back to the concentration object and it goes anywhere else. You stare it back and you keep staring it back many times and after a while it learns to stay on the object for longer and longer periods of time. So the first tool of concentration is like a like steering wheel in a car. You Wherever it's going to go off somewhere, chasing after some distraction, you keep bringing it back and it learns to stay on the object. 
And then the second is to look more carefully and look more closely at the, all the subtle details of the object so it becomes a whole world you get absorbed in. We call that trickpa, intensifying, staying more intensely on the object. And then thirdly, we train them to have metacognitive capacity, to train their awareness to detect when they go off track and to know when they get into chasing after mode or to know what they're just chasing after, their distracting thought or sound or sense experience. And to pick up that distraction more at the head before it gets too far and turn away from it more quickly. Mm. So the three tools are directing or steering the mind towards the concentration object, intensifying so you stay more closely engaged with all the intimate details of that object, intimately engaging it, and then detecting distraction more quickly and staying on track. Those are the basic tools like learning to drive a car. Mm-hmm. And if you practice it, after a while, the, there are two things that happen. One is that the mind stays for longer and longer durations of time on the concentration object. And thought elaboration, all that extraneous thought elaboration winds down and eventually stops. So you get long periods of stillness, absence of any thought. So that's the beginning of the practice. Those mm-hmm. are the, we introduce the basic tools. And after a while, they get what we call continuous staying. They can stay on the object for maybe five minutes without getting a distracting thought or sense experience. Then we focus on what we call the problem of partial staying. They'll discover that they're staying partly on the object and there's a subtle fleeting background noise of thought that they're still engaging. Mm -hmm. Most of that background noise is little things they're saying themselves that keep it on track and it's unnecessary. So we tell them to intensify even more carefully, to stay so fully engaged in the object, so busily engaged with the meditation object that nothing will distract them and they can learn to disengage from that attachment to that subtle thought fully now we have continuous staying over time and complete staying at any given time so they're just staying on the object all the time now and then we'll work with the problem of drowsiness and agitation of mind that comes up and how to develop a balanced sustainable alertness so now they can stay on the object completely, continuously, with an optimal state of alertness. That's the first half of the elephant path. Mm-hmm. Then what will happen is they get very deeply concentrated. The object won't be solid anymore. It seem like energy and movement in space. But there's still a deep imprint. You can still follow it. So they have to learn to concentrate on what we call the subtle level of mind, where the object is all energy and movement in space. And to train themselves to have what we call automatic concentration. The analogy here would be like putting a car in cruise control. So the concentration goes by itself and deepens itself. And all of the variability in the concentration eventually winds down and they get what we call concentrated evenness. There's a, it just goes by itself automatically and, and, and with an evenness to it. You stay every moment by moment by moment. Then finally, when thought elaboration completely is absent, they learn what it's like to operate out of the intention of awareness rather than operating out of thought or operating out of self. So whatever, at that point, the last stage of the elephant path, whatever the mind's awareness intends, it does just that and only that immediately and effectively with nothing that interferes with it. Mm-hmm. There's no, no extraneous thought elaboration that, that gets in the way. That's the stage you want to get them to, to mm-hmm. understand what it's like to operate out of the intention of awareness rather mm-hmm. than operating out of thought mode or self mode. Because then they can do it. They can apply that to everyday life. When I write books, I don't get distracted. I just sit down and write with crystal clarity. Mm. Or if I'm on the stand as an expert witness in a child abuse case, 
I can, all I need is three or four questions from the opposing attorney to see where his strategies are, and then I'm going to have fun with that. So you want to be in that state when you need to be in that state. It's a useful state to, to train yourself in. Yes. So that's a little synopsis of the nine stages of the elephant path of concentration. And so this is what you teach, that, that you, would you lead these executives and judges through that in your two-day seminar? Yes. And how then, kind of crossing over into more traditional practice and training, how does that relate to, say, when you're beginning to teach someone Mahamudra, the, on the Mahamudra path, where does that, where does that fit? You start with concentration training, and the end point of concentration training is whatever the mind intends, you operate out of that field of awareness rather than operate out of thought mode. But there are other things that will interfere with the practice, and that's where we introduce emptiness training. I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Daniel P. Brown. Be sure to stay tuned for part two of my two-part interview with Dan Brown. If you liked part one, then I encourage you to listen to part two. It just gets better and better. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. I can't tell you what a huge difference that makes for the show in terms of exposing us to new meditators. And I wanted to let you know that Dan Brown is offering listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast a 25% discount to his online course. So during the retreat I did, the eight-day retreat, the first half of it was this incredibly powerful training in concentration and meditation called the Elephant Path. And that teaching... Dan has distilled that in an online course, an online self-paced course at his website over at mindonly.com. But listeners of the One Mind Meditation podcast can get a 25% discount on that self-paced course, and I highly recommend this, by following the link on the show notes page for this episode and the next episode. So head over to aboutmeditation.com, go to the podcast section, and click on the link for this show, and then you'll see in the show notes, I'll put it right at the top, special offer, 25% off for One Mind listeners for Dan Brown's special course, meditation course on concentration and meditation. This is the course that he teaches every year for Harvard to judges and doctors. It's really a peak performance course, and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's amazing. You will learn a lot, and Dan is a wonderful teacher. He brings that balance, which you will have felt during the show, the balance between Western psychology and Eastern Tibetan Dharma, and he, he fuses those in his teachings with an explanatory power that is pretty unique. I have not encountered anyone who can really talk about East and West in the same breath and they're co-illuminating in, in that way. It's just, it's remarkable. So please, if you're compelled by what you've heard today, check that out. 
And if you're looking to take a meditation course, then this is the one. So head over to aboutmeditation.com and check that out on the show notes page. So as usual, today we're going to end with a quote. And this one is from Hafiz, the poet. And he writes, Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, You owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Sky.